0: Greetings and hello, fellow Trekkies. Welcome back to another episode of Yelling About Star Trek. My name is Christian Fox, and this is the show where I yell at you about all things Star Trek for your amusement. So I'm not yelling at my friends and family who don't want to hear my thoughts and theories on this fantastic franchise. Today, I want to talk about Lieutenant Barclay and make the argument that Barclay is actually the most courageous character in the entire Star Trek franchise. But before I get into all of that, make sure you get out of your space pajamas, put on your shiniest pair of boots, get a cup of coffee, get a cup of tea, maybe some iced tea if you want to pull the archer maneuver, and brace for impact because things are going to get nerdy. Reginald Barclay. Now, he's a popular character, but he's reoccurring in that he shows up sometimes, but he's not in every single episode and not in every single series. But to me, Barkley is actually the most courageous character in the entire franchise, and I do want to explain that, but obviously I just want to say right off the bat, I don't mean any disrespect to any of the other characters, people like Captain Sisko, Bacard, Kirk, Worf, Dax, Kira... Any of those folks, because obviously they're incredibly brave and obviously they are people that constantly put their life on the line to save the day and to do what's right. So their bravery is not in question. But personally, I think that Barkley is actually the bravest character. And the reason I started thinking about this was because I saw a post on the Voyager fan group where there was an image and it had. All the different characters shown and below the different characters it had, what they represented and the best quality. And someone put courage for Barkley. And another gentleman commented on it and said, oh yeah, that's actually really true because Barkley is very brave. And that got me thinking about Barkley and why I actually think he is the bravest character. So the first thing that I think stands out with Barkley is the fact that he just has so many fears and constantly deals with those fears on a daily basis. And the the first thing that I want to discuss is his fear of interacting socially and just social anxiety. But for him, it's incredibly high. And I myself don't really have any social anxiety. I like socializing with people. I love going to parties. I can't wait to get back to parties when they become safe. But generally, I like that. Now, I do experience some social anxiety when I'm making small talk with someone. For example, if I pull up in my driveway and see that a neighbor is out on their porch, I get a lot of anxiety because I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to get out of the car. I'm going to go have to socialize, be polite, make sure that they know that I'm interested, but also find a way that I can politely say, oh, you know, it's been nice talking to you, but I actually have to get going. And trying to gauge all of that is just so stressful to me. But overall, I'm not really that uncomfortable socializing. But Barkley is someone that finds any interaction incredibly horrifying. And the way I think about it, and obviously I haven't spoken to Barkley because, well, for one thing, he's a fictional character, but I don't ever want to assume the way someone is feeling without actually finding out if they're actually feeling the way that I'm assuming they are. So in the case of Barkley, I don't want to go out and say this is what Barkley's feeling, but watching the show and seeing him interact, I get the sense that a simple interaction for him, say, especially in season three when he's first introduced, you know, just having a conversation with, say, Geordie or a coworker, is so stressful to him that it would be like me having to give a presentation in front of hundreds of people. Or even worse, it would be like me having to ride a roller coaster. And I hate roller coasters. I don't like them. But they're things that I will never really have to deal with because if someone wants to go to a a theme park or an amusement park, rather, and they want to ride roller coasters, they might just say, hey, Chris, I totally get that you don't want to, no pressure. Or they just might not invite me, and that's totally fine. But I really don't have to actually face that fear because, well, my daily life doesn't require me to do that. But for Barkley, he does have to face that fear every day. He gets up every morning, puts on his boots, gets his uniform all done up, and heads to engineering and then has probably thousands of conversations with Jordy and with his co-workers and Riker sometimes. And that's horrifying. And he also doesn't feel like people like him because he's awkward, which makes him more afraid of actually doing that. But even with all of that, Barkley gets up every morning, puts on his uniform and goes to engineering and does his job which is amazing. Basically, that would be like me having to go to Wonderland every day and get on a roller coaster or go on the drop zone or something horrifying like that every day for seven or eight hours and then finally I could be relieved and come home. But no, I don't do that every day because I don't need to and I'm afraid of that. So I wouldn't put myself through that. But Barkley, no, he doesn't. He just gets up and does the job, even though it's terrifying. So I think right off the bat, he's dealing with his fear and trying to overcome it the best he can, even though he's not successful at it in the beginning. And it's, you know, very awkward to watch him interacting with everyone else. And especially when he's interacting with Riker, because I would say that Riker is probably the most uh, socially skilled of the TNG cast, like someone that can go into any room and crack jokes And just generally be very fun to be around so it's very awkward but even so you know that Barkley is trying to overcome that not only is he trying to overcome it but we actually get to see a future where he has done it if you look at Voyager Endgame in that episode in the future timeline he is not only shown to be really sociable But he's kind of the life of the party. People love being around him. He's making speeches. He's cracking jokes. He's teaching at the academy. And the students seem to love him. So yeah, so he has overcome his fear and become incredibly competent when he's in a social situation, which is a lot. There's not a lot of people that really overcome their fear to the point where not only do they just okay, I've got to go on the plane or I've got to go on a roller coaster and I'll do it once and I'll I'll face it. But no, he's repeatedly putting himself into situations where he's exceeding and now enjoys being on the roller coaster. So to me, that is something that is just phenomenal and I think is totally underappreciated when talking about characters and who the most heroic or most courageous character might be. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is humiliation and the fact that Barkley had to deal with probably one of the most humiliating things that any person on TV has had to deal with and probably one of the most humiliating things that you hopefully likely will have had to deal with. I know I haven't had to deal with anything quite that much. I've had my own things that have been embarrassing, but nothing on that level. So let's let's break this down. So as I said earlier in the podcast, he was introduced in season three. And the episode that he's introduced in is called Hollow Pursuits. And in that episode, he's introduced as a really awkward guy, and no one wants to be around him, as I said, and people think he's a really crappy officer. But because he struggles so much being around real people, he spends a lot of time in the holodeck, and we are actually previewed to his fantasies where he's created images of Riker and Jory and Picard and Data that he can beat up, and then... He's also created images of Troy and and Crusher, which is a little bit uh, uncomfortable, and that's a whole other gray area for a whole other topic of the podcast. But yeah, he's he's kind of has these fantasies and has created them in the holodeck, so he can sort of carry out his fantasies, which is again a little strange but understandable, given that well, the holodeck is very much like our TV and our computers with internet if you will put it that way just uh, it's a tool for escape and that's what people in the 24th century do want to escape their real life so he creates all these fantasies which I understand a little bit strange but I get it looking at it from the 21st century lens of it's like a computer it's like a tv it's like a the internet kind of thing so I get that but in that episode there's a really cool subplot where there's something wrong with the ship but no one can quite figure out what's going on and so they have Barkley on the case and Picard wanted updates and Riker was like oh Barkley was supposed to be here what's going on and then they find that he's in holodeck 2 or in some holodeck and they go down to the holodeck and they walk in and they basically see him playing out his fantasies so keep in mind, this is not just him sword fighting, but also the fact that Troy is there as the god of pleasure, and and Crusher's there, and they're all dressed in a very kind of provocative way, so, you know, reading between the lines, Riker, Geordi, and Troy can kind of figure out, you know, what he might have been doing or what he might have been fantasizing about. And so that's already awkward that his boss, his therapist and his boss's boss are now in the holodeck seeing his entire fantasy. And so that would be like your boss and maybe your boss's boss. And as I said, your therapist or people that you work with coming into your room at night and seeing you know, that side of you that you don't really want to share with the world. And again, I don't want to get too much into it because I like to keep everything TNG in terms of like PNG on the TNG level, if that makes any sense. I like to keep things clean. But you can imagine that, yeah, we all have fantasies and there's things that we'd rather not share with our bosses. And so just imagine them coming to a room, seeing what's going on, what your deepest and darkest fantasies are and then making you go to work very likely you would have a conversation with HR and I know if I was in that situation I'd probably just say all right uh, I'm gonna go to a different job I don't really want to work here anymore because what you've seen is too personal so I probably just bail and get the heck out of there and never look back and hopefully you know, quit on good terms if that's even possible at that point. But either way, I'd probably just get out. And I'm sure a lot of people would probably say, no, my boss and my therapist and all these people have seen way too much and I can never ever live that down if I go into work again, so I'm gonna quit. And that's totally understandable. But no, Barkley doesn't quit He says, oh, this is awkward, gets out, does his job, saves the day, and then stays on the Enterprise. He doesn't leave. He doesn't request a transfer. And Barkley doesn't say, hey, Captain Picard, uh, this really awkward thing happened, which I'm sure Rutgers reported to you. uh, So I'm just going to get a transfer and go to a different ship. Okay, I want nothing to do with you. No, he doesn't do that. He just says, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to get the job done. So he stays there, gets the job done, saves the day and doesn't leave. And he's there for a good I want to say maybe six or seven years. I don't think the timeline's quite adding up, but I know he's there in first contact. So he's there for a long time. And again, he doesn't let that stop him. He commits to being on the Enterprise and doing his job to the fullest of his capabilities. And I don't even know if Riker or the other characters would even stay around that long if something like that happened to them. Maybe maybe not, but it's just, it's something that would be very, very difficult. But he goes through the experience and sticks around. And the final thing I want to talk about is his fear of being transported. And obviously, we don't know what that's like, because it's a TV show, and it's not real. But one can imagine that being afraid of a transporter is like one being afraid of flying. And People that are afraid of flying might not ever fly, or they might do it once in a blue moon and only when it's absolutely imperative. But in Star Trek, beaming up and beaming down to planets and doing all that kind of stuff is standard. It's the way we drive. It's like going onto a bus or getting a taxi cab or getting an Uber somewhere. It's so common that we do every day that you just simply cannot avoid And so Barkley deals with this and throughout the episode is trying to work around it. He's trying to avoid it, but eventually he confronts it and realizes that he has to be the one to go into the transporter and is able to find that survivors are there. So the fact that he overcame that fear as well, and you never really hear about that fear again, implying that he's okay with transporting And obviously, by itself, that's already a huge accomplishment. But when you take into account the fact that he already overcame his fear of socializing with people and his social anxiety, it's incredible. And it's even more incredible when you think about the fact that he overcame both of those fears in the span of three years. So overall, I think because Barclay is willing to deal with his fears on a daily basis and has not left Starfleet or left the Enterprise is incredible and I think something that deserves mad props and something that I think uh, definitely deserves more discussion and with all of that I think it's time we move into this week's edition of wait what did you say And the Technobabble that I chose for this week comes from the episode Unnatural Selection, which is the season two episode where Dr. Pulaski starts aging incredibly fast. And the dialogue is actually specifically from a scene near the climax where they sort out the solution and realize that they can use the transporters to essentially system restore her back to before she was exposed to the crazy virus that was causing all of these problems. And the scene is between Picard Data and O'Brien. And so Picard says to O'Brien, you said the transporter could be modified to filter out the changes in Dr. Pulaski. And O'Brien responds, yes sir, but we were unable to locate her trace pattern. And Picard responds, well what if we used a sample of her DNA, say um, from a blood test taken before she was exposed to the disease, could that be used to filter out the genetic changes? And in response, O'Brien says, well, I'd have to go into the biofilter bust and patch in a molecular matrix reader. That's no problem. But the waveform modulator will be overloaded without the regeneration limiter in the first stage circuit. And then Data chimes in with, hmm, interesting. And so there are many things that I love about this scene. Obviously, one of the first things is I love all the technobabble. I love all the jargon. I love when they're incorporating DNA and Molecular Matrix Reader, that sounds cool. Waveform Modulator, I'm into that because while well, it sounds impressive, and regeneration limiter another piece of technology that sounds pretty cool so i love this scene simply for all of the crazy big words they use to make it sound impressive and sci-fi but what really stands out to me in the scene is o'brien's comment we'll have to get into the biofilter bus and patch in a molecular matrix reader that's no problem i love the fact that he says that's no problem it's like he said this incredibly complicated thing but then said well that's easy like that's something i can do in my sleep it's just the other stuff we have to to worry about that's going to be a problem and when i listen to o'brien say that it <laughs> reminds me of mechanics talking about cars like oh i'll we'll just have to you know put the engine in and then do this and do that thing or people that are really into computers are like oh i just swapped out the S- ssd drive for another drive and then I-, I did some other stuff and i'm not even sounding that intelligent because all of what <laughs> those kinds of people are saying are things I just don't understand. But I always appreciate it when they say that kind of stuff and make it sound like it's something super easy that everybody can get. So his comment, I'll have to patch in the molecular matrix reader, but that's no problem, is amusing to me and <laughs> made me laugh whenever was watching that episode. But the final thing within the dialogue itself is Data's comment, hmm, interesting. Now I know for a fact that Data is brilliant. So I know that Data understands exactly what O'Brien's talking about and is totally understanding the entire plan. But the way he says, hmm, interesting, makes it sound like he doesn't really know what's going on. That's the kind of response I have when someone says something really complicated, but I don't wanna to have to say to them, hey look, I'm sorry, but I don't get what you're talking about. Can you break it can you can you break it down? So I'll just say, hmm, interesting, and then try to keep the conversation moving so they don't catch on to the fact that I really don't know what I'm talking about. So Data's response and the way he delivered that line, rather the way Brent Spiner delivered that line, made it sound like Data really didn't know what O'Brien was talking about, but didn't really want to say, hey, O'Brien, can you explain that to me? So that always made me laugh. So within the dialogue, those are the two things that I found really amusing, but There are some other layers I want to get into that I think (laughs) makes this scene even funnier. The first thing I want to mention is the technology of the transporter. The fact that they are able to essentially, as I said earlier, use it as a system restore. So they're able to say, hey, let's uh, take the DNA from... Dr. Pulaski that was good before the exposure and we'll put it into the into the computer and then she'll go into the transport and then she'll rematerialize back into her previous state. So essentially what they're saying is we can use it to cure any disease, any sort of illness. People really shouldn't even die or age because you can just pop him into the transporter and say, Oh, what was your what was the last time that you were actually healthy? and then use that data and then you'll just rematerialize them and they'll be fine. So that's kind of an issue. And that's something that's been pointed out before. But the reason I was thinking about it this time was because of a video done by Trek Culture, which, check them out, they're a great YouTube channel that just really gets into Star Trek and they do a lot of really fun lists and they're amusing. Um, And they were talking about this as being one of the unresolved things that is never brought up again. But what made me laugh in that video was someone's comment where they basically wrote that the transporter is the most impressive piece of medical technology in the Star Trek universe, but they use it like a bus. And that cracked me up because they're right. It's like, yeah, this transporter can do all these amazing things medically but they use it to beam down to planets it would basically be like imagine if there was a device that could cure cancer but instead we used it like a bus and literally we're like we're going to take this incredible piece of technology that could cure cancer in any disease and we're going to use it to get from walmart to superstore or to shoppers world like how silly is that so that comment made me laugh and it was a comment that kind of cracked me up for about a week or so Where it's just like yeah they take a transporter, this fantastic piece of medical technology, and use it like a bus. So that made me laugh. And the final thing I want to talk about, because I realize I'm like going at like warp speed here, because I'm like really excited about this, is who went to get that DNA? So in the scene, they're like, ah, if we use the DNA from Dr. Pulaski or DNA that hasn't been exposed, we can use it in the transporter and cure her. So what do they do? Riker and Data go into Pulaski's quarters to try and find something. They end up finding a a piece of hair from a hairbrush, which works out in the day. It's fine. But this is a woman's quarters, okay? So you've taken Riker and Data, two men, and have sent them into the quarters to go find this piece of dna and what do they do when they go in they look around a little bit carefully but they're like all right let's just go for it so they start opening up all of her drawers and throwing out her clothes and all this stuff to find the piece of hair and to me it's like you're sending two dudes in to a woman's quarters and you're going to have them look around and look at very intimate drawers and you know like it's just to me is a huge invasion of privacy why not send troy maybe with another woman and they could look in because at least they're both women so they have an understanding of you know her privacy and understand that but to send two dudes in like the first officer and the second officer to go into her quarters it's just <laughs> i don't know it's silly uh, it's not a big issue for the overall episode but it's just funny that they two men went into her quarters and just started ripping out drawers and just throwing everything around and really not thinking about it. So that kind of made me laugh. So those are my thoughts on the episode. Love the Technobabble. Overall, great episode. Always enjoy rewatching that. But what do you think? Do you agree with me that Barkley is the bravest character in Star Trek? Or do you think that title belongs to someone else? Let me know. I'd love to hear also let me know what you like about the show, what you don't like, what I need to improve, because ultimately I want to make a show that you enjoy listening to. And in the paraphrased words of Captain Kirk, I shall see you out there that away.